America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to look at another great controversy facing the Biden administration. Uh, this uh, going to a hospital in, uh, in East Jerusalem. It is a Christian Palestinian hospital and giving $100 million of U.S. taxpayer money to support it. Why is this controversial? Well, because President Biden did not invite Israeli officials like people from the Ministry of Health who um, actually administer part of the supervision of that hospital because the hospital's in East Jerusalem which has been recognized uh, as the capital of Israel. Jerusalem has been recognized as the capital of Israel. They haven't actually specified that East Jerusalem is permanently that way. Of course, some people want East Jerusalem to become a Palestinian capital. Uh, with all of this, $100 million from the U.S. government, uh, President Biden is living to, uh, leaving tonight, not from, <laughs> he is leaving from the White House. But he's leaving at 10 o'clock tonight for his trip to the Middle East, where they have actually separated uh, some of what he was planning to do on this trip from, and uh, they're rescheduling it because they don't want to overtax the president, who is 79 years old. I, I know it's easy to forget because he's so spry, right? At least that's the theory. Uh, we will get to that. We will also get to the big issue that's dividing a bunch of Democrats who are fighting in primaries. This illustrated by Politico. What's the issue that is uh, dividing Democrats? Abortion. Really? Dividing Democrats? Well, let's get there also on the Michael Medved Show. And we'll be talking to... Mark Leibovich, who has written the funniest political book of the year so far. And I can't imagine that any book will be funnier or more entertaining. It is a book called Thank You for Your Servitude. And uh, it's about submission in the era of uh, Trump. It's particularly interesting and, and relevant uh, after another day of of blockbuster hearings that were incredibly dramatic. During the last hour, they were just ramping up the hearings with testimony that I haven't heard yet in its entirety, but the testimony at the uh, hearings that they were finishing with involved uh, two participants in the actual riots of uh, January 6th. And no, they did not say that all of the demonstrators were peaceful and well-meaning and patriotic, uh, there were a bunch of violent creeps there. And uh, one of the people who testified was a, a leader and uh, actually a communications aide to Oath Keepers, which is one of the groups that was uh, talking about violence and violent resistance against the election result before it even happened. And then there was uh, another participant in uh, those rallies who now deeply regrets it, but was just a normal patriotic American who came there and was led to come there and participate in this activity, which they have now had, basically they have indicted 839 
different people. I mean, that's a lot of people. That's uh, a lot more than Watergate. Uh, 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, two things. First of all, Salty Cracker, who is a uh, pro-Trump YouTube uh, streamer, said a red wedding would be carried out in D.C. on January 6, 2021. A red wedding from Game of Thrones is in pop culture a reference to a bloody massacre. Better understand something, son. You better understand something, the YouTuber says in a video shown during Tuesday's hearing on the House January 6th Committee. Red wave, and then uh, a word that we can't say. Red wave, word we can't say. There's going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. In uh, that clip, uh, Jamie Raskin, who was helping to lead the questioning today and the presentation, he's a congressman from Maryland. In that clip, he said, you heard one of Trump's supporters predict a red wedding, which is a pop culture reference to mass slaughter. The uh, reference comes from the Game of Thrones series by author George R.R. R. Martin, which was adapted for television by HBO, so give credit. The Red Wedding in the series refers to a gruesome massacre carried out during a wedding celebration that resulted in the deaths of multiple main characters. The phrase has come to signify uh, violence and mass murder in popular culture. And then this, and, and this came in from Paul in Redmond, and uh, it's an email, and I'll give it to you in its entirety. He says, I just turned on your show and caught the clips of what President Trump was listening to January 5th. That was the rally at Freedom Plaza within earshot of the White House. I am wondering what in that rhetoric was so violent. What am I missing? So what? They talked about taking back their country. This is common for any protest. I did not hear them telling people to commit violence on Congress. It was 1776, whatever that means. If you simply compare that to what is being said outside the justices' houses and the support by President Biden and his administration, that is a real call for violence, not to mention assassins being assigned to kill them. Is this serious? January 6th was a bad riot and people need to be held accountable, but really, I don't want Trump to run either, but this will motivate all the people who look at this as pure hypocrisy. When you weaponize the DOJ against your political enemies and only serve one-sided justice, it is noise, not news. This hearing has made me feel sympathy toward those protesters and Trump. It is ridiculous. Uh, Paul in Redmond. Uh, Paul, again, when you say it is ridiculous, there were 140 police officers law enforcement personnel, Capitol Police, D.C. Metropolitan Police, they finally, at the end of the day, got the thing in order with the arrival of the National Guard, but there are 140 police officers who were seriously injured, who went to the hospital. And there were a total of nine people who died, two people who died among the demonstrators, and yes, Ashley uh, Babbitt was shot. Uh, when she was trying to throw herself through the glass window into the floor of the House of Representatives, and there was another woman who was trampled, trampled by her fellow demonstrators and trampled to death. Uh, the property destruction, the uh, desecration of our national capital, 
And when people are talking about um, taking matters into their own hands and we're going to shut down this capital, I, uh, I was extraordinarily outspoken, and so were a lot of conservatives, by the way, including Donald Trump, appropriately in that case, about the George Floyd riots. Uh, there were riots all over the country. Not all of them were deadly. Some of them were. And uh, there was no possible means to, to justify any liberals who attempted to excuse the property destruction, the threats, the destruction of businesses, uh, and, and the in injuries and assaults on police officers. But all of that was here, and it seemed to be sanctioned and supported by the President of the United States. And it is a felony, it is against the law to interfere with a Congress doing its duty. And some of the 800 people, I think most of them have been uh, indicted, arrested for that. And isn't that appropriate? If they weren't trying to stop Congress from doing its duty, what were, were they trying to do? Do you have an answer to that? We would love to hear at 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's, it's dangerous for America. It's dangerous for the world. This is The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show uh, the uh, database at the Washington Post that no one has challenged because it's based on public records and it's fairly open. Uh, 836 people have been charged in federal court with January 6th uh, related offenses. 406 for felonies and 430 for misdemeanors. Of course, felonies much more serious with more serious penalties than misdemeanors. Of the 836 charged, uh, 332 have already been convicted or pleaded guilty. 69 of them for felonies, 263 for misdemeanors. Of those charged, 46 defendants have been linked to the Proud Boys and 32 to the Oath Keepers. Of those convicted, uh, 206 defendants have already been sentenced, 20 of them for felonies, 186 for misdemeanors. Uh, that's um, a, a lot of people. And the Watergate scandal, by the way, which uh, resulted in the resignation of President Nixon, and he was resignated before he was even impeached by the House of Representatives. I, I am not one of those people. I'm not at all sure that Nixon would have been removed from office. Uh, most historians think he probably would have been, but who knows? In any event, there were 69 people indicted and 48 people who were convicted during the Watergate scandal. So a, a very, very small fraction. It's um, a less than uh, one in 10 to uh, compare to the people who have been indicted and uh, convicted already so far. Uh, let us go to your calls and to Eric in Issaquah, Washington. You're on the Michael Medved Show. Michael, hi. Good afternoon. Hi. I just, I can't get past 
the point that this election was stolen and something needs to be done. Now, these people that went there, the fringe groups acting out, breaking things, whatever, the majority of the people there were to march peacefully and, pro, you know, uh, patriotically to let their voices be heard, which is exactly what Trump was preaching. And those those are the people that are getting railroaded. I don't get this. What, what do you mean they're getting railroaded? They're being thrown in this group with these fringe elements. You know? I don't. Uh, uh, people who didn't storm the Capitol building, I don't think there are any individuals who have been indicted who uh, weren't involved in either planning. Okay, okay, they walked in. I don't call that storming the Capitol. They walked in through open doors. A lot of them were let in. Okay. okay, they've got video of that. There, when you see the when you see the video, that that was a very small percentage. The this this was a very aggressive and violent attack. I mean, somebody injured those hundred forty cops. Let me ask you this: if because it's honest, and I I mean this with all sincerity, I do not know the answer. I don't presume to know the answer. Let's say that things had had worked out really well. The, the best that Trump could hope for. What do you think could have been achieved that was beneficial for the country by calling this uh, huge rally uh, in Washington and urging people, and or hold on, and urging people to march up to the Capitol building to interrupt a constitutional procedure and a joint session of Congress? Yeah, voicing their opinions and letting their voices be heard is not illegal, okay? Trump uh, it is illegal to interrupt a joint session of Congress when they're counting the electoral votes. They can yell all they want. They can yell all day, you know? Okay, they, but they weren't outside. They the went in. Were, the majority is what I'm talking about, not the fringe group. Okay, but the majority participated in overwhelming the police, and— the the difficulty here is Trump is uh, Trump's not a lawyer never never studied law, but he knows something about it. And what do you think? If you were able to talk to President Trump and say what uh, what went wrong on January sixth? What what was the the positive plan to try to uh, stop the steal? What, what was that plan you had in mind, Mr. President? What do you think it said? I, I would say that uh, people needed to go there and let their voices be heard, and which is what he preached. Okay, and, and, and what, what would, ha what would happen? Let's say, let's say it was it's totally exposing. peaceful. Hold yeah. on. That it was totally peaceful and nothing happened. There were no injuries. There was no violence. That it was just a lot of people marching around. They had another march like that where they were going to blow uh, shofars, ram's horns, and make the walls of the Capitol come down just like uh, Jericho in the Bible. But that had happened like three weeks before. That was peaceful. Nothing happened. What would have been accomplished after making their voices heard? Uh, basically rallying everybody together and, and letting them, you know, exchange ideas and, and reasoning and, and uh, lawful... Uh, okay, so opposition. let's let's reason together. Let's reason together right now. In other words, given the fact that they had already brought some 62 law cases trying to challenge the election, and I know you believe the election was stolen, 
Do you know how many state attorneys general there are who uh, uh, who are Republican and virtually all of them loyalist to Trump? They're twenty six. By the letter of the law, there wasn't. It wasn't illegal by the letter of the law. But where where in the law does it say, you know, stuffing ballot boxes with with fake votes? Okay, unless you're caught in the act. Yeah, it's absolutely illegal. But it, you have to Correct. be caught. Well, it, the the point is the fact that there there are no attorneys general who have even launched investigations. And the Attorney General of the United States, lifelong Republican Bill Barr, who had been very loyal and given good service to Trump, he certainly helped get him through the uh, the Mueller investigation, if you remember. Uh, Bill Barr told the president, Pat uh, uh, Cipollone, who had basically, uh, he had defended Trump during his first impeachment. He was the leading defense attorney. Uh, all of these people have told President Trump there's no grounds to believe that there was election fraud of any significant scale at all. The is going in the right direction, and more and more stuff is coming out every day. And in the end, 10, 20 years from now, I don't know, it's all going to be, you know, looked back on and picked apart. But also, okay, and how, I, do, I how, do you, how do you explain the fact that all of these people whose jobs depended on Donald Trump, who were appointed by him, who served him, who were his loyal associates, including Vice President Pence, that, that all of them uh, basically said, Mr. President, it's wrong. There was no stolen election. It's a lie. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's political death. Okay, if you're going to come out against, if you're going to come out against the election, you're not going to have a job. Okay, you're going to get railroaded and thrown right in the group with all the rest of them and dragged into court and sued or whatever you know. Okay, they're not dragged into court if if you tell the truth, and and the the truth is that it's a terrible, terrible thing to convince Americans that their government at every level. Judicial legislative executive is hopelessly corrupt. We'll be right back. All across America, this is the Michael Medved Show. And I'm going to make a confession here, and it has nothing to do, thank God, with January 6th. Nothing to confess there, uh, but uh, this is a uh, confession of something that happened this Saturday. And yes, it uh, was the uh, just uh, two days before the, uh, uh, well, this last Saturday was after the 4th of July, so it doesn't add up to that. I, uh, I have a bad habit, which is when I read something that I really, really love and just take pleasure in a book or an article, I, um, I like to read it to people, to read it out loud. And that was the case this past Saturday. I was reading out loud from a, an excerpt uh, published in The Atlantic for what has to be one of the best books of the year. It is called Thank You for Your Servitude. And uh, the subheading is Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. 
the author is Mark Leibovich, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He previously wrote the huge bestseller about the quirks of Washington, D.C. and its unique and strange culture. Uh, that book was called This Town, the new book. Thank you for your servitude. Uh, Mark Leibovich, congratulations on the book. And I will tell you that uh, when I read it to the people at our Sabbath table, everybody loved it. Uh, great to hear, Michael. It's good to be back with you. I always love coming on your show. And um, yeah, no, today the, the book is officially out today. And uh, the excerpt, I guess, got whetted a lot of people's appetites. So uh, yeah, hopefully people will read it. I mean, it's not a not always an uplifting tale, but um, hopefully, you know, people seem to, to be enjoying it, too. So uh, if, if, way, it, well, it, some of it almost reads like a parody. And it reminds for people who've been following politics, it reminds people of of uh, various things in the recent past that, that are kind of easy to forget. For instance, I had forgotten about the fact that uh, <laughs> President Trump accused uh, Ted Cruz's father of participating in the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. Ted, Ted Cruz, uh, who said some very nasty things about Trump right before the convention and at the convention, He's uh, become one of Trump's most enthusiastic defenders and backers, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's just one very, very—he's one one example of really what's been an entire party or much of an entire party that has, um, despite knowing better, despite conceding privately that they don't think this guy is fit, they think, you know, at worst he's he's criminally dangerous— um, you know, a lot of them, you know, in public will be uh, quite sycophantic, will do his bidding, and that continues to be really the prevailing the dynamic within the uh, the putative leaders of the Republican Party today. And, and you know, look, I, I think the working title of this book was always, they all know better, and I had enough conversations with enough people around Donald Trump and enough of these elected officials to, to know that, that they do know better, but this was sort of whatever they decided to, to do uh, because they made it. They wanted to make the whole thing work for them. Uh, two questions quickly. Um, do you think that the hearings have changed any of that? And number two, did you watch the hearings today? You know, I've just got been getting caught up. I, I've been um, running around, you know, doing my doing my first sort of day of book promotion. But yeah, I was just getting caught up. I mean, I, to my surprise, I think the hearings have really moved the needle. I, I had pretty modic, modest expectations coming in, but um, it seems to have uh, swayed public opinion some. I mean, I think it's been presented really, really well. Um, yeah, I think it's been brilliant for them to sort of dispatch with the, the speechifying. Everyone gets a turn to sort of do their thing. Um, it's been very directed, very effective. So, yeah, and, and I think I think the most important gift of, of what it's provided is that it's provided a contrast. I mean, it's provided very simple patriotic bravery among some of the White House staffers. Uh, you know, Rusty Bowers, the Secretary of State of, of Arizona, uh, Cassidy Hutchison, Speaker, the, the chief Speaker of staff. Speaker of the House. He's, he's Speaker yeah, of the House. Speaker, in I'm Arizona. sorry, Speaker of the House. Yes, I messed that up. Yeah. Um, Cassidy Hutchison. I mean, just a number of people. And, and even if you want to sort of look across the pond, I mean, the conservatives in, in England, um, they sort of said, all right, enough is enough. We're going to actually stand up to Boris Johnson. Now, obviously, it's a different system, but, but it's, I think, analogous. So, you know, anytime you have an example of courage and character, uh, especially to maybe shame, if they're capable of shame, the, the cowardice 
uh, that so much of, of of the Republican Party has shown in in not standing up to Trump, even though they think he is privately they privately will think he is dangerous, is I think is a good thing, and I think it's been quite educational. Gino, I know that one of the challenges you're going to get for your book, and so let me hope that I'm the first to to give it. Is is this a double standard, Mark Leibovich, uh, given the fact that Bill Clinton was clearly guilty of perjury? I mean, he clearly mm -hmm. had lied under oath. Uh, he yeah. did not behave well. And mm -hmm. uh, how many Democrats voted uh, to remove him from office in the, in the U.S. Senate? Answer, zero. Uh, which, um, th does that show something that is comparable in any way to uh, what you're describing in Trump's Washington? You know, maybe, I, I guess, sort of when you look back, uh, I mean, the, from what I can remember, and it was a long time ago, but I, I, the Democrats' main argument was not that Bill Clinton was a model citizen and not that he, um, you know, not that he told the truth all the time. I mean, Lord knows. I mean, I, I think their defense was that it did not rise to the level of impeachment. It was not a impeachment level offense, which I remember, like, if you remember the first Trump impeachment over the Ukraine phone call and, and the activities that went on over there. Um, there were a number of Republicans who, when the news first came out, the revelations first came out, were saying, well, this is inappropriate, um, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. And, and to me, that was a valid argument, right? Um, but, you know, the, the Republicans, like Max Thornberry of, of Texas was one of the first to say that. Uh, Trump didn't react well to it. He wanted total absolution. And, you know, from there, everyone had to sort of bow down to the perfect phone call narrative. But, no, I, I see your point. I, I think at this point you sort of have to look at orders of magnitude of the offenses. And I think what Trump has done is just orders of magnitude uh, worse, frankly, than what Bill Clinton did. The, the one thing that amazes me most, and, and your book is full of narrative with fascinating characterizations of people that you kind of think you know, but uh, providing mm -hmm. deeper depth, particularly to Kevin McCarthy. You, you do think he's likely to be the next speaker, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think he's got a, I mean, look, I think Republicans have a very good chance to, to win the majority. I think I expect them to. I think most people expect them to. And I think once that happens, Kevin McCarthy will rightfully be able to say, well, I am the leader of the Republican minority. Uh, I led you to victory. I raised all the money. Uh, you should make me your speaker. And I think he's also, um, you know, pieced together a lot of very, very strong individual relationships with his members, raised a ton of money for a lot of them. So I think that there's a level of indebtedness and, and loyalty that, that a lot of his members have for him. So, yeah, I, I do expect Kevin McCarthy to be Speaker of the House. Okay. Kevin McCarthy is one of the people you highlight in your hilarious and brilliantly written book. It is called Thank You for mm -hmm. Your Servitude. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about the idea that uh, for the submission, servitude that people mm -hmm. provided, I mean, I think of Rick uh, uh, Perry, of the uh, our energy secretary. I guess we don't hear that much about him, ex-energy secretary. But he had called Trump a cancer on conservatism and then became part of the cabinet. When we come back, I, I want to talk about any examples of Republicans who uh, turned around on Trump, uh, got onto the into the cheering section and the section of sycophancy and adulation that Trump prefers, and any Republicans who actually paid a price for that? 
there are plenty who paid a price for uh, <laughs> not joining the cheering section. Um, we will be right back with Mark Leibovich's new book, uh, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. What price? We'll be right back. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's open, it's expansive, it's welcoming, it's filled with light. This is The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, you don't have to be anti-Trump. You certainly don't have to be a Democrat. Uh, Mark Leibovich has profound sympathy and admiration, actually, for a lot of Republican leaders. But what he is writing about in the book is the strange idea that President Trump, who was really an outsider in the Republican Party, and did not have a lot of credibility in the Republican Party. One of his first campaigns for presidency, which was back in 2000, he was making around on talk shows talking about running for president as an independent or maybe with uh, the Reform Party left over from Ross Perot. Uh, he was talking that time about a wealth tax and sounding very much like Elizabeth Warren. So uh, given the fact that President Trump came from so far outside, how could he become this unifying feature where basically everyone in Washington with a uh, future or a position or a uh, 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 basically prospects in the Republican hierarchy, everyone basically had to kiss the ring or the rear end? Uh, how yeah. did that happen? The book is well, called Thank You yeah. for Your Servitude. So, Mark, I, I was asking you right before the break. Uh, anybody uh, who who really uh, did uh, uh, did not actually pay a price, and what price will they have to pay for some of this uh, accommodating to President Trump? Well, I mean, you know, the, the easy example or the counterexample, the ones who were were you know not hesitant at all about defying Donald Trump and, and criticizing him and, and being very open about their lack of respect for him, whether it was Jeff Flake, um, you know, uh, and Bob Corker in the Senate, people like Mark Sanford in the House. I mean, these are people who either lost elections or, or opted against running again because they probably weren't going to get through primaries. So there are a number of people who were kind of rendered to the sidelines by their unwillingness to play along. Um, and, and look, you asked, what is the price of submission for like Kevin McCarthy? I mean, he would say that <clears throat> this will all be worth it, uh, all the headaches, all the tightrope walking of trying to keep Donald Trump happy if he can become Speaker of the House. That singularly will redeem everything in his mind. Uh, I'm not sure it will. I mean, it sort of depends who's doing the judgment right, but it also he sort of decided that, like, once he reaches that goal, everything else will be secondary. Um, you know, for someone like Lindsey Graham, he wanted to reelected to the Senate from the state of South Carolina, and it's very hard not to do that without the blessing of Donald Trump. So he contorted himself, uh, 
you know, accordingly in order to make that happen. So, look, people make everyone has their different reasons. I mean, I think that the people who have been most um, consistent in defying Donald Trump have. I mean, there have been a few consistent profiles. I mean, a lot of people of faith, like Mitt Romney and Jeff Flake, um, you know, have been have been pretty consistent against some Trump. A lot of military veterans, like John McCain, you know, Adam Kinzinger, and so forth. And, and you know, I think quite a few um, people who have sort of you know, political Republican sort of political dynasty heirs, like Liz Cheney, or even like John McCain or Mitt Romney. Um, you know, these are people who sort of, I guess, sort of look for a higher, a higher purpose to what they're doing. But look, I, I mean, everyone's different. Everyone makes their own calculations. And frankly, I think in most cases, it's been just sort of rank opportunism that has uh, kept people from you know doing anything else. Well, you, when you write about Lindsey Graham, and I thought it was a great insight, uh, Lindsey says he wanted to remain relevant. That relevance was enormously important to him, and. Uh, Basically, uh, if you look at the examples, you mentioned Jeff Flake or Mark Sanford. Well, they're now irrelevant. They're out of Washington. Uh, they're, they're done. Uh, the, the question I would ask would be about uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, Trump is completely determined that uh, even if the Republicans win control of the Senate, he is going to see to it that Mitch McConnell is not majority leader. Uh, what is the deal in that relationship? Because you would assume that uh, Mitch, Mitch and uh, Donald would work it out. But uh, what is uh, the future going to bring if the Republicans actually do win the Senate? Well, I mean, you know, a few points. I mean, one, they, they worked it out well enough for four years so that Mitch McConnell got his three Supreme Court judges and any number of other, you know, sort of, Judges and, and pretty you know, powerful circuits throughout throughout the, uh, the the judiciary. So I mean that's not a small thing at all. I mean so if and that's not a small thing not just for Mitch McConnell. It's not a small thing for for conservatives across the country. So um, you know let's put that aside. And, and you know also a tax cut, which was a, probably the biggest legislative accomplishment of Trump's presidency. Um, something a lot of Republicans wanted for a, for a long time. So there's that. Um, I, I don't see, I mean, I don't McConnell ever really liked Trump. I, I think the feeling was probably mutual. Um, I don't quite know how Trump is going to deny Mitch McConnell his leadership position, uh, you know, whether the Senate goes Republican or, or Democrat in November. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't I mean maybe Trump controls a handful of votes, but yeah, Mitch McConnell's been leading this caucus for a long, long time. And I'd be shocked if he didn't have, you know, at least 30, 35 votes locked up, you know, from the get-go. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I think a lot has to happen before Donald Trump is president again, and uh, Mitch McConnell is leading the uh, a majority in, in the Senate again. But, uh, you know, it's sort of hard to imagine not only getting to that point, but also them working it out and sort of figuring it out. But, yeah, that's what politicians do. I mean, expedience and sort of mutually beneficial arrangements can pop out of nowhere when you really need to make something work. Okay, right now, a lot of speculation. Trump uh, just announced that he had spent millions of dollars refurbishing Trump Force One, his personal 757. And uh, there's a lot of speculation that he will announce for president before the uh, midterm elections in November. Uh, what's your yeah. guess? Um, you know, I, I would imagine that his instinct would be to do it sooner rather than later. I mean, he does seem to be chomping at the bit. Um, 
it, it also, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, I guess, some legal things involved, and in, and you have to spend certain pools of money differently if you're a candidate versus not being a candidate. Or, and you know, I, I do think that he would like to. I also think it would be a giant gift to Democrats, um, which I think Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell know all too well. Which is why they and I think a lot of other Republicans, you know, hope that he will hold off till after the midterms because you know, as soon as Trump places himself front and center of this discussion uh, more than he already is, uh, you know, it, it takes the focus away from all of Joe Biden's problems, and you know, that should never be. Under you know under under uh, estimated um, you know inflation gas prices the whole the whole deal so yeah I mean I think they would Democrats would love that and I'm not sure Trump was able to help himself to be honest well that gets us back to the question of the hearings uh, there's a as a whole school of thought right now that the hearings make it more likely that Trump will run, not less likely, because he will feel that the only way he can answer the charges against him, and he comes off looking like a complete jerk in the hearings. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it's it's tough to watch sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, uh, what, what do you think? Is he more likely to run because of all of this focus on some uh, pretty chancy, iffy decisions by President Trump? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, that is sort of the school of thought that, you know, one one argument for doing it now would be that he would immediately sort of elevate his identity as a political figure, as sort of an operative political um, entity, sort of a going concern, if you will. And, and that would in itself cause, you know, be, be cause for some insulation against prosecution, uh, some Justice Department action against him. Uh, I'm not sure how much water that holds. I mean, in whatever calculations the Justice Department is, um, you know, is making around the decision on, you know, what to do with him, what to do with all this information and whatever it is their investigations are turning up. Uh, I don't know if, if that's a, you know, pertinent, um, a, a pertinent you know, data point in, in them making their decision. I, I just don't know. But, you know, there is a school of thought that it would be a further insulating factor in Donald Trump. Um, you know, being prosecutable or being vulnerable to a Justice Department action. So your best guess is uh, the election battle that everybody is dreading <laughs> in 2024. Yeah. Is it a, uh, a round two for Biden versus Trump, or is it Biden versus DeSantis, or is it... Uh, uh, I don't know. I think the most the most likely uh, scenario is probably Trump versus Biden, and I can't imagine a lot of people in either party or certainly in the independents would be excited about that prospect. Oh, it's thrilling! What could be more exciting or uplifting <laughs> or ennobling? I'll tell you what could be. Reading. Thank you for your servitude, uh, Donald Trump's Washington, and the price of submission. The price of the book. Well worth it in this greatest nation on God's green earth.